Does this light go any brighter? Uh, I don't know. It's all the way up. Sorry. I can. It's brighter outside. I can give you a little more light. You know, these, well, Richard could just stand here and let the radiance shine on me, I guess. We were, we were wondering why this light was not shutting off. It was because we thought it was plugged in the timer, then I discovered it was actually plugged in the extension cord, which is why the timer wasn't working. Does that help at all? Um, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Don't want, hurt, do. don't want to hurt his feelings. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best I can do. Greg, you could move the podium closer to the light. Or you can move it back. That requires action on my part. <laughs> you don't have it's not a log in your eyes. <laughs> you don't have it memorized? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking in one of the songs we were singing, I don't really don't know why, but I was thinking about Jesus standing at Lazarus' tomb saying, Lazarus, come forth. And I think that's what he does with every one of us, spiritually. He calls us by name and says, come forth. And we do, and until he does that, we're spiritually dead and we stay spiritually dead. And then we were singing that song, uh, Our Firmer Foundation, and every time I hear it, of course, I think of J. Vernon McGee because that's yeah. <laughs> that's always his theme song, you know. And there's a there's a man named Ricardo who is uh, Mexican. He's American citizen, but he does a lot of the the yard work for people in the neighborhood. And um, I talk to him a lot. And uh, he's Christian, and he'll walk by if I'm outside or sitting on the porch reading or something like that, and he'll say. Amigo, J. Vernon McGee? And I said, yes. And he'll go. <laughs> and then he'll say, Donald Trump? And I'll go, and he goes, yes. <laughs> I want to look at the first psalm. It's only six verses, but it says a lot, like so many of them. 150. That's how many psalms there are. And they were written throughout the Old Testament revelation. From the time of Moses, believe it or not, one of the psalms says, a psalm of Moses. That's Psalms 90. To the period after Israel came back from the deportation, from the period of time they were in Babylon, and that's Psalm 126. So it covers the Old Testament for a long, long period of time. 72 of the Psalms attribute themselves to David, others by Solomon, Asaph, uh, Heman, and the sons of Korah. So you've got a multitude of authors. And they're all different types. Some of them are laments. And a lament is an expression of extreme sadness. And then you have some psalms that are psalms of thanksgiving, others that are hymns and songs of praise. Some of them are called wisdom psalms, like Psalm 119, and even Psalms 1, which we're going to look at. 
and some of them are called imprecatory psalms. And that's when the substance of the psalm is calling down, is calling for God to execute his judgment against his enemies. They're imprecations. They are calls of vengeance. And they're not called for human vengeance, but they're called for God to exalt his name, to glorify his name, and bring his enemies to nothing. So, you've got a number of different psalms. The New Testament refers to the book of Psalms more than any other book. And that tells us that one major focus of the, of the book of Psalms is the work of Christ and his kingdom because the New Testament's always referring to it in reference to Jesus, in reference to the kingdom of God. For the most part, because the Messiah had not yet appeared, the Psalms talk about the Messiah in a shadow or a veiled way. They don't make direct reference to him, but they make reference to the Messiah as the coming king of David or the, 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 um, an expression of the kingship through David. But then there are some that are absolutely clear. They're clear to Christians anyway, and they're called messianic psalms. And you've got a number of those. You've got Psalm 2 and 22 and 45 and 72 and 110 and a number of others which are, again, messianic psalms. The psalms call us to meditation. And when we say the word meditation, immediately we get this thought in our mind, meditation. Okay, you think of it in terms of New Age stuff or false religions, and it's an entirely different type of meditation that the Bible is talking about. New Age meditation calls for an emptying of the mind, a a sort of achieving a sort of neutrality where you let anything come in, that you become one with nature or you become one with nothingness. It's, It's a silly, ridiculous type of thing. But the book of Psalms, on the other hand, says that, and again in Psalms 1-2 it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He meditates day and night. And Psalm 119 says, Oh, how I love your law, it is my meditation all the day. When it talks about the word law, it's translated Torah. And what it really means is every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So when you meditate on the law of God, you're meditating, you're thinking, you're, you're, one, you're, you're putting your mind, you're, put, you're putting your spirit, your whole being on everything that God says. That's what biblical meditation means. It's not emptying yourself. It's filling yourself with the word of God. World of difference. It's both an intellectual, a mind, and it's a spiritual exercise where the believer reflects on on everything. He considers everything in the word of God. First to understand it, and then after understanding it, applying it 
to yourself. Because the next step after understanding it and implying it beyond meditation is what's called expostulation. And that's the word that simply means reasoning with yourself on the word of God. And when you reason with yourself with the word of God, what you do is you say, okay, this is how I'm walking and this is how I'm thinking and this is what God says. Therefore, you need to correct your walk and correct your thought to bring it in line with the word of God. That's reasoning with the word of God, allowing it to change your behavior, to change your thoughts. In essence, you take what you've learned from the word of God and you hold it up to your beliefs and let scripture correct you. So you've got a man that's tempted to sin that he then what he would do, he would reason with himself regarding the awfulness of sin, the dishonor that the sin does to God, the damage it does to the man himself, and even more so what it does to the church at large. So you reason and you let the word of God fill your mind and see what it's doing to you and you change the pattern of your thought and the pattern of your behavior. That's how you develop a Christian worldview. You let the word of God change how you think about all these things. A number of Psalms are really great guides to this way of thinking. For example, in Psalm 11, David has been brought to the point of despair. He's discouraged utterly. And the question comes up in this psalm, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? A, a, a statement of despair. And we see it today, the foundations being destroyed everywhere. What can the righteous do when all this happens? In other words, things are falling apart, so you might as well give up. <clears throat> and then David responds in this same psalm, Psalm 11, by reminding himself that the Lord is in his holy temple. Since the Lord tests the righteous, he hates the wicked, and the upright shall behold the face of God. In other words, David reminds himself, based on the things that he's learned from the word of God, that regardless of how things look, God's in control, and God is the judge of all the earth. It's also interesting to know that the early church used the Psalms as the first Christian hymn book. It, it's also kind of funny if you think back, for a lot of us anyway, on your early Christian experience. Most all of the songs that you learned were short songs that came from the Psalms. The book of Psalms and the book of Romans were the two books that Martin Luther chiefly focused on up to the time that he went and nailed his 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg. And so this tells you that so much of what came out of the, Revel of the Reformation were based on these two books because that's where he was focused for years working up to this point.
And so with that background, let's look at the first psalm. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If you wanted to put a title to this song, this psalm, it might be, Which Way Are You Going? There's the way in which we find happiness and fulfillment in life, and that's by meditation and in delight in the law of the Lord. And if you choose not to do that, then you're warned of certain eventual and eternal ruin that's going to come. You know, Jesus told us about two ways also. In Matthew 7, he talked about that there's a wide gate and a broad road that leads to destruction and a narrow gate a small road excuse me, a small gate and a narrow road that leads to life but not very many people take it Psalms 1 draws two pictures for our mind one is the wicked man and the other was a wise man. And the question is, which are we? The song begins with the word blessed. Blessed means supremely happy or fulfilled. In Hebrew, the word is actually a plural. So it means a multitude of blessings. An intensification of blessings. But the blessed man is seen first in what he does. Excuse me. It's seen not first in what he does, but in what he doesn't do. So it doesn't say the blessed man does this. It says the blessed man doesn't do these things. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. The contrast between the righteous and the wicked is shown in the very first verse. And in order to say what the way of the godly man is, we first have to look and see what the way of the godly man is not. If you notice the progression in the first verse, first there's walking in the counsel of the wicked, then there's standing, finally, and then finally there's sitting with the wicked people. The way of the wicked is all downhill. They go from bad to worse. The psalm doesn't just show the lifestyle of the wicked. It shows the fruit of the lifestyle of the wicked. The way it's going to end up. 
the wicked are on a fast track to emptiness and frustration. Frustration now and judgment eternally in the life to come. It's really interesting that if you look, you don't need to turn there, in Psalm, excuse me, in Genesis 19.1, It says this. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The gate is where the judges of the city sat. It's where the people in authority in the city sat. Lot is sitting. Sitting is always a picture of people in authority. When Jesus taught, he sat and the people stood. Lot is sitting in a place of authority in the gate of Sodom. You walk. First you you walk. Then you stand. And then you sit. And he's sitting with the wicked people of Sodom in the gate. Kind of interesting, isn't it? What about the way of the righteous? You'd think that since the wicked man is described with his associations with other wicked people, that the righteous man would be talked about in his association with righteous people, but that's not what it says. Instead, the righteous man is described as one who delights in the law of the Lord and on which he meditates day and night. Instead of the progression, or instead of joining with the wicked, again, and this is what it also says in Colossians 2, 6, and 7, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up again in him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. doesn't talk about who you walk with. I, was, I spent my time with these godly people. That's, a, that's a, a, a no-brainer. But it's walking in the Word. It's walking with Christ. That's what determines a godly man. Not your association so much with the, with the other righteous people, although that's going to be a byproduct. But it won't be a byproduct if not if you first are not walking with the Lord and meditating on his word delighting in the law of the Lord meaning all of God's revelation in scripture it's an indication of the new birth because what does Romans 8 7 say it says the sinful mind is hostile to God it does not submit to God nor can it do so The godly find that they love the law of God. They meditate on it. They love it. They immerse themselves in it. It's their life. They don't avoid it, abandon it, get around to it every other week or something like that. 
the man who delights in the law of God and draws his spiritual nourishment from it, it's like a tree that draws its nourishment from the water where it's planted. The land may be dried and the wind may be fierce, but the tree sinks its root deep into the ground and it's going to prosper and it's going to yield fruit. And that's the way of a godly man. Remember, Jesus promised that we would bear fruit if we abide in him. And the fruit comes by the grace of God, and it comes in its season, which means in his time and not in ours. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 say virtually the same thing. It says, Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by waters and that spreads out its roots by the river and shall not see heat when it comes. But her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful or concerned in the year of drought. Neither cease from yielding fruit. Saying that its leaf will not wither means the tree is evergreen. And like the tree, the godly will not wither will be evergreen, even in barren times. Since the word of God stands forever, according to Isaiah, we too are going to stand forever in the word. If we look at verses 4 through 6 again, let me read that. The wicked are not so but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. A person who delights in the law of God and draws his spiritual nourishment from the word, it's like a tree that draws its nourishment from the abundant flowing water. And I just skipped the place there. Excuse me. If you say its leaf shall not wither, it means the tree, meaning the tree is evergreen, and like the tree will not wither, will be evergreen even in barren times. And now I'm getting to where I should be. Excuse me. The righteous are going to be like the evergreen tree yielding fruit. But the wicked are quite different. They're the chaff which the wind blows away. The picture here is of the threshing floor in Israel. And the threshing floor usually was a place uh, on the highest hills where the wind would blow. And you wanted the wind to blow because when the oxen went over the grain or whatever instruments went over the grain, You could throw the grain of what was on the floor into the air, and the chaff, which is the hull, the outer shell, would go in, the wind would blow it away, the grain would fall back to the floor, and it could be reaped. The chaff is scattered, and it's burned. And that's what the wicked are like. You want to know what the wicked are like? 
That's what scripture says. They're like chaff that are blown away and burned up because they're worthless. They're worthless, they're burned. This is a picture of a futile, empty, worthless life of the godly, as well as their final judgment. Now, in the Garden of Eden, Satan told Eve that if he disobeyed God by by, uh, eating of the forbidden fruit, the fruit that he was never to touch, then his eyes would that her eyes would be open and she would be like God, knowing good from evil. But she didn't become like God. She became like Satan. Her eyes were already open before. Now she and Adam had become blind to spiritual realities. Sinners scoffed. Scoffing means mocking contempt. Sinners scoffed at the righteous, but now they find themselves excluded from the congregation of the righteous. They're excluded when God's people are called together. In Psalm 24, 3 and 4, the question, it asks the question, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? And then it answers the question. And the answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And once again, verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. You're looking at the final end of the righteous and the final end of the wicked. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. You know, there are times that we're burdened, pressed down, all the trials, all the difficulties. But the Lord knows us, and he knows us, and he's with us in the midst of them. Job 23.10 tells us, He knows the way that I take. When he has tried, when he's tested me, I shall come forth as gold. If you notice in the last verse, the word way is used twice. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked. The first word translated way comes from the Hebrew word meaning to know, to have intimate relationship with. The form that they use here indicates that the Lord keeps on knowing the way of the righteous. In contrast, the word form used in the second word that's translated that when it says the way of the wicked, it means to wander off. They wander off or stray from the watchful eye of the Lord. Psalms 1 then is a call to meditate on the revelation that God gives us. But there's a problem. Which one of us can avoid the counsel of the ungodly in this secular society? Who can meditate on the word of God day and night? Who can be constantly fruitful and evergreen? None of us can. But we can take heart because there's one who can and one who does. Jesus lives in perfect communion with the Father. He delights in the word of God 
He prospers in all his ways. And in Christ, we become the blessed one of Psalm 1. You ever read Robert Louis Stevenson's book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? If you haven't, you probably know the basic plot anyway. Dr. Jekyll, who is a physician, well-respected man, finds a way in which he could change himself into the person of another man. He could, not, he could change not only his internal thoughts and his feelings, but he could also change his external looks and his actions. Whenever Dr. Jekyll decided he wanted to turn himself into Mr. Hyde, he took a drug, and the miracle took place. Everything about Mr. Hyde was different from Dr. Jekyll. Mr. Hyde loved sinful places, sinful things, and sinful people. And he spent his nights carousing and doing all kinds of wicked things. When he got into trouble, or when it was morning and time to <clears throat> for Dr. Jekyll to go back his daily routine, he went back into the laboratory and took a drug, and the transformation took place, and he was back to Dr. Jekyll again. This went on for some time, but eventually... Mr. Hyde became stronger and stronger and Dr. Jekyll became weaker and weaker and eventually Dr. Jekyll died but Mr. Hyde lived on. When we walk in the counsel of the wicked and we stand in the path of sinners and we sit with those that hold the righteous in contempt we become Mr. Hyde. Maybe that's why Psalms 1 ends on a negative note. The way of the wicked will perish. Maybe it ends that way telling us that the way, telling us that, that it's a warning to all of us to be faithful in our walk with the Lord and not to forsake taking the word into ourselves and meditating on it day and night. Romans 8, 5, and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Let's pray. Lord, we see these words and we know that they're truth. And Lord, we, we know that unless you have fulfilled these Unless you lived, Lord, these words forever. Unless in you we live them also. There's no hope. 
but our hope is in you, Lord, and our strength is in you, and our joy is in you. Lord, let us be careful how we walk. Let us be careful how we think. Let us be careful how we're influenced by the world. And Lord, the only way to build up our strength is for the word of God to be so strong in us that even when the multitude tells us that we're wrong, tells us that we're influenced by crazy things, tell us that we're prejudiced, tell us that we don't know what we're talking about, the word of God prevails. And the word of God is such a strong power within us that, Lord, you overcome through your word in us. Lord, help us to ever be vigilant and not to forsake your words in any way. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.